HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for listening. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Meant to Be Eaten. I am your guest, Andrea Ween. And today joining me on the phone, we have two awesome ladies. Soleil Ho, a writer, chef, and co-founder of Racist Sandwich, a podcast that explores topics of food, race, class, and gender. And Kimberly Chow, co-director of Food Book Fair and co-host of Recommended Reading, which is live right here on Heritage Radio every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Ladies, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Thanks Thanks for for having me. Thanks for having us. Of course. So to start, I want to set the baseline of our discussion today by asking how each of you define three separate terms. So cultural appropriation, cultural, or I'm sorry, culinary colonialism and food sovereignty. Oh, okay. Hello, are you on here too? (laughs) Yeah. 
You right, wanna um, you wanna take a first pass? Sure. Yeah. So um, cultural appropriation, right, is sort of this is a descriptive term, a sociological term to talk about this sort of exchange of cultural sort of artifacts or aspects between cultures. Um, you know, appropriation means like sort of the, the taking of something um, from one context to the other. And um, what was it? Culinary colonialism, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and colonialism has a bigger sort of historical reference where, you know, you talk about colonialism as a force, as sort of a conquering kind of um, ideology. And part of that also means sort of shaping the land that you're colonizing and taking over in your own image. You know, sort of this God complex thing. And um, culinary colonialism, in essence, sort of means kind of reshaping like a culture that you're taking over through food. And um, gosh, I'm really bad at remembering things. The last one. <laughs> what was that one? The last one is food sovereignty. Oh, right. So food sovereignty is, of course, um, the opposite of that second term, which is control over what you eat and how you eat it and when and where. Okay. And Kim, I know that you have mentioned often to me that it's important that this conversation about cultural appropriation and who's allowed to cook what and all these things that have kind of been out in the zeitgeist really start to move toward food sovereignty rather than the question of right or wrong. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, of course. I think this is a conversation that folks like I have and SLA and our colleagues uh, in the space that are doing this work have been talking about that it's, um, I think it's really important. We've been having conversations, especially folks in communities of color, um, from immigrant communities, communities have been having conversations about culinary appropriation and of other people benefiting specifically in the capitalist system that we live in by cooking and making money off of the food that we are, are ancestrally, um, connected to. Um, and it's really important to call that out and have that in the greater conversation about food and food culture and uh, in some way what's popular and, and what people are interested in. But we have been having this conversation for a while now, and a one way to sort of move the conversation forward is to talk about, okay, so instead of reacting, which is really important, but we have been reacting for a while, and now uh, the mainstream, um, meaning mostly non-POC folks are, are paying attention, um, are invested in this, are interested, let's say, in this conversation, and then it gets confusing, and a lot of times it becomes a question of who gets to cook what, or right or wrong. But it's not that simple, and it's not binary. Nothing is really binary, really, in our world. Um, though a lot of times we try to make it that way and make it about yes or no or right or wrong. The one productive way that we talk about uh, moving the conversation forward is to talk about instead what do folks of color want, what do immigrant communities want, and of course it's different for everybody, but when we're talking about about food and, and this movement and how to move this conversation, one way to do it is to talk about our ownership um, 
of our foods and being able to, as as Soleil was saying, cook what we want, eat what we want. And I would add that in this capitalist framework that we operate in, to be able to run businesses where we can have our livelihoods based on that. And I know you mentioned when you were just speaking through that, that ancestral connection is really why this is such an important issue to you. Are there other reasons why these issues really speak to you and speak to something that you want to give a platform to? Um, I think I think having an emotional connection to the food, and certainly you can have an emotional connection to Korean food or Vietnamese food or Mexican food or Peruvian food, even if you are not um, from a family of that culture or raised there. Um, but I think there is a kind of soulfulness um, and an intangible that comes through in the food, and, and I think that's really important. Um, that is just really hard to define, but I feel like I can taste it. But it's also, um, we can get into that later, but other reasons why it's important, um, I think for folks of color, for people from marginalized communities, and there's a large overlap between uh, communities of color and folks from marginalized communities or folks whose voices have historically been marginalized in America, in the West, um, it's like, yo, you're trying to take away or suppress a lot of the things that we already hold dear. At least give us kimchi, or at least give us collard greens, or at least give us um, fried rice or dumplings or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's not to make it flip or simplified, but these things really matter. And it's really emotional, these things the food that we talk about. When you think about the main emotion that comes out when you're talking about this or fighting for it for other people, and this is a question for both of you, what is that main emotion? Is it passion? Is it anger? Is it something else? Hmm. I think, well, I guess it's a hard question for me because a lot of, there is a base of emotion and it's um, sadness and sort of, Mm. Uh, and a knowledge of tragedy, because when you are a member of the diaspora, um, you know, a member of an immigrant community who has been displaced from their home, you know, you have that knowledge where you can't go home again, you know, of course. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, food is one of those ways in which you stay connected. And the inverse of that, I think, is that it's not just people like us who know that, it's also the people who are oppressing us who know that. And, you know, food is also a way in which you undermine community. And, you know, of course, um, communities of color in the United States and the Western world are disproportionately subject to, you know, food desert situations. You know, um, we disproportionately do not have access to food and the food that we're comfortable with and understand and good nutrition and all these things um, that, you know, are axes for us to actually have control over our diets and ourselves and our children and our families and so on. Kim, do you agree? Is that is sadness the main emotion for you as well? Um, it's also a complicated uh, question and answer for me. Sadness is definitely part of it. Um, I think, I mean, it's, it's a large conversation, right? And, uh, in terms of the sort of 
some of the way the conversation about cultural appropriation or culinary appropriation, how it's framed in sort of 101 mainstream media writing, the sort of who gets to cook what um, false question, I think. My main emotion is I'm sick of this shit. Um, <laughs> but it's a lot more layered than that. And I think mm-hmm. if you really, and I really, um, all of us, if we really get behind, beyond quick hits and listicles and um, tweets, so there is definitely depth in that as well. Um, yeah, I think that's problematic that across things, right? It's across everything. It's not just this one issue. I think everyone is taking this very listicle to use your term approach where it's just this bite-sized fast food media and no one is really digging into what's behind it or cares perhaps. Yeah. I don't think there's necessarily, you know, and I'm not saying that there are list. I mean, maybe there's out there, there's this something, there's something out there that's like top 10 ways white chefs are making their own kimchi or whatever. And don't send that, don't at me. But, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm like getting lost in the morass of my feelings here. But um, sadness is definitely part of it if you really dig deep toward the center. Because as Soleil said, if you are part of a diaspora, often you are part of, you're part of a people that can't go home again, whether you had to leave for some reason or whether you were pushed off of your land or pushed out of the place that you live and that you call home. Um, And I'm just thinking specifically about um, some friends in our New York uh, food community that have been doing organizing, or I guess you could say organizing through food um, and about food sovereignty. about Palestinian food and about indigenous food cultures throughout North, Central, and South America, um, and how inspiring and powerful that is, but how much unlearning needs to be done for the average uh, person that grew up in this country who are who's not usually exposed to this, these cultures to um, sort of delve deeper and start learning about Palestinian food, Palestinian foodways, history, music about indigenous foodways in North America, et cetera. Um, and I think a lot of it is sort of dominant narratives in mainstream media and education in this country, um, as it also applies and intersects with food culture in this country. That's put us in a certain place where the conversations we're having now about culinary appropriation and uh, where this conversation is going to go is still limited because there's so much work we have to do. And a lot of it is shedding what's built up that we don't know about that's built up. It seems like a lot of this conversation too is weighted and toward Asian food and Asian culture. Is that accurate to say, or is it seems like that's the majority of the stories that I read or the people that I speak to? It's It seems like Asian culture and food is driving a lot of these conversations. Well, I think um, Asian food is really, oh, certain types of Asian food are really trendy right now, and I think that's why you see mm-hmm. a lot more of this. Um, it's what the white food writers and chefs are really interested in. It's in vogue, and it's been in vogue for a while. 
um, you know, you have Japanese food, Vietnamese food, Filipino food, all, and Korean food, all sort of like kind of fastened onto, um, you know, where people pick and choose what they enjoy out of it and put it in different contexts. And of course, um, Asian Americans as a whole have a really hard time uniting under any sort of political front. And so um, when you start talking about food, that's when they get excited. Say that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's a really great gateway to get Asian American activism going. And kind of the burden of activists like me and like Kim is to sort of spin that into a bigger conversation about capitalism, about racism, and about sort of how there's such an, a buy-in among Asian Americans in the United States to participate in racism and anti-blackness and anti-indigenousness. <laughs> um, so using food and using sort of flashpoints, right, of like, oh, my God, they're making uh, chocolate ramen or whatever, um, using those to mobilize people to think about deeper things is completely, like, legitimate and I think important strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think I would agree with Soleil here. Yeah, uh, Asian food is really trendy in a lot of ways, different kinds of Asian cuisines. Um, and that is a way for us to get people activated and motivate people to connect the struggles for our sovereignty over this, uh, over our own foods to the larger struggle for justice, beyond food justice, um, and sovereignty for all communities, which can be, which is historically a hard, can be a hard thing for Asian Americans to become energized and unite Hmm. over, unite under. Yeah, that's a (laughs) great point. I want to talk more about this. We're going to be right back after a word from our sponsors. We're talking to Kimberly Chow and Soleil Ho. We'll be right back after this word. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. I'm Andrea Ween, you are listening to Meant to Be Eaten, and today we are talking to Soleil Ho, 
writer, chef, and co-founder of Racist Sandwich, a podcast that explores topics very similar to this one of food, race, class, and gender, and Kimberly Chow, the co-host of the Heritage Radio Show Recommended Reading and co-director of Food Book Fair. So before we took the break, we were talking about why the prevalence of Asian food and Asian culture in this conversation I want to switch a little bit to the activism side of things. And I think, you know, you often see that the activism around this issue and around food sovereignty is being driven by American-born children of immigrants rather than the immigrants themselves. Do you think that there's a divide in the conversation between the immigrants and the people who are on the front lines of this conversation that are American-born? Could you say that one yeah, more time, um, actually? So, <laughs> sure. Kim, go ahead. Uh, I can, or, or Andrea, could you ask the question one more time? Sure. Do you feel like the activism is being driven by immigrants who are new to America or more from American-born children of immigrants? I mean, I think one thing when we're talking about folks that are uh, newer to this country, there may be a language barrier there. Um, so that's one thing we need to talk about. Um, I think when we talk about for a second, 1.5 or second or third generation children of immigrant communities, of communities of color, um, I think specifically I'll, I'll speak about Asian America, which is not uh, a thing, but to about many different Asian American communities, not to try to make a general statement, but there are a lot of folks that um, are coming from families where working in restaurants, cooking Chinese food, working at the Korean restaurant was a way to raise your family when you first moved here. That Those were one of your only options, uh, um, especially what we were talking about earlier, the, the language barrier. So the idea of having your children do this or your grandchildren having to do this or choose to do this and choose to be in food seems horrifying. But there are folks from second, third generations, 1.5 generations that are making the choice to get involved in food and get involved in food that is not, uh, that is beyond, um, survival. It's just survival in a different sense, survival towards greater cultural sovereignty. Um, and I think for folks that have those connections, I think that is a motivator too, um, a way to be inspired by this. Um, and also, I think one thing we should talk about too is the folks that are doing really amazing work around African-American foodways and uh, what we know as Southern food and shedding light on that and talking about how it is all the innovators and the pioneers of what we call Southern food um, are descendants, are, are, uh, they were the foods and foodways and food cultures and often uh, the crops that were um, brought over by people that were enslaved and did not come over here by choice. And the foodways were furthered by their descendants. And there, I mean, obviously, Southern food has been pop popular outside of the South in ways that are frequently sort of um, 
ambassadorized, if we can make that a word, by white chefs, and that's a problem. But there are really amazing black chefs and writers, Michael Twitty, Tony Tipton Martin, Adrian Miller, that are doing this kind of work, um, which, to go back to a couple questions ago, if I may, before the break, Asian, I think that's a huge part of the conversation about food sovereignty and culinary appropriation right now, perhaps bigger than people talking about different kinds of Asian American food um, and how are they being cooked and shared right now. But it also sort of depends on where that writing is getting play, where it's getting published, who's retweeting it, where it's showing up. So a lot of I think the framing and the structure of the conversation about culinary appropriation and food sovereignty has to do with still who are the gatekeepers in media for the long version of that. (laughs) No, it's helpful. And, you know, I think even in my own hosting of this show, there's times where I've felt very acutely white (laughs) hosting the show and talking to people. And that can be construed in a number of ways, depending on how you're listening and who you are. And, you know, it's it's sometimes been uncomfortable for me to be in these conversations, though I, you know, obviously believe that they're so important. And I know that it's been uncomfortable for guests to be as candid as they would like to be on air sometimes, just because this is such an emotionally charged topic. And I think we run the risk on both sides of either being too sensitive or being too aggressive. And I think that really leads us down this path where people have an aversion to speak their mind, and that's really what's needed to get the conversation moving forward. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on all of that. But, Soleil, do you have anything specifically, you know, on on who are those gatekeepers and how we can all work together to, to move this conversation to something that's more constructive? Yeah, so um, I think that a lot of gatekeepers in the food world, especially, are so they're white, right? Um, you know, the heads of you know, fact is that the heads of the majority of the mainstream food publications are white men, and you know, as you go sort of further down, a lot more of the gatekeepers, the editors, the people who are soliciting stories, who are doing the hiring, they are mixed. They're white men and white women. And I think for a lot of these places, diversity stops at, okay, we have white women now, so we're diverse, you know? Um, and so that conversation is, has been sort of a sticking point lately um, when we try to sort of engage on a level of saying, like, okay, so this selection of writers that you have for this, you know, series are, aren't really that diverse. And then you get the sort of counter where, oh, no, but there's lots of women in it, right? But it's only a certain kind of woman, a white woman. Um, and the same with sort of features that are like, especially in the wake of all the sexual harassment stuff, right? Like we have all these features that are about women chefs, um, but the vast majority of the women chefs who are kind of um, consulted for these pieces are white women chefs. And so I think we need to sort of broaden our definition of diversity because it doesn't stop at gender, right? Um, and I think for a lot of the food world, we have to catch up that idea because mm. women of color are women too. You know, people of color are people too. And we have a lot that has been but not in the venues that actually get a lot of traction or attention. 
Yeah. Have you found on your own show, obviously you do a great job of bringing in a whole mix of different types of people, but have you found a reluctance of guests to be forthcoming about these topics on air, to speak candidly? Um, um, yes, and Oh, <laughs> oh, sorry. Do you want to go ahead, Kim? This is not, sorry, that wasn't a me question. <laughs> Talking about racist sandwich um, <laughs> specifically, but Kim, I would love to hear your thoughts too after if you have something on this topic of being on air. Sorry, Shalai, go for it. Um, no, no, it's okay. Uh, so, yes and no. So there are certain aspects of our show that I think we've done really well on. You know, we've had really, like, a great spread of people across, like, ethnic cultural lines and gender lines. You know, we've had several, like, gender non-binary trans people on. Um, but... I recall a specific instance where we were trying really hard to do a story on Muslim-owned restaurants in Oregon that had experienced discrimination, you know. Um, you know, could have been just post-Trump or post-9-11. And nobody wanted to talk to us on record. And because there was a real threat of retaliatory violence that they were afraid of, of, you know, um, bringing on for coming onto our show and speaking out about their lived experiences. So that's been challenging, and you can't really guarantee that that's not going to happen in this world. Yeah. And so that presents a really tough challenge journalistically. Yeah, it's certainly something that we've had an issue with on this show as well. So, Kim, did you have something that you wanted to add? Um, no, not on this specifically. So staying on the racist sandwich topic, was there something that happened or a specific moment where you really thought, this is something that the, the world needs to hear and I have a voice to be able to bring it? Um, let's see. I think, yeah. So um, there was a moment where I met my co-host, the co-founder, whose name is Zahir John Mohammed. He's a journalist. He's older than me. He's written all around the world and worked for the U.S. government and all this stuff. And he was just asking me when we first met about my experiences as a chef with a woman of color as well. And I was just telling him, you know, normal things. <laughs> and he was shocked by what I had to tell him. He was just shocked by the microaggressions that I recounted and just sort of the, the now sort of treatment that I received just for being who I am and looking the way I am. So that was really, I think, the, the instant or, I guess, collection of instances that, that kind of had us think about this as a serious project. What types of things have you learned so far doing the show? Um, you know, I've learned that it really does matter to give voice to these sorts of things, especially in the context of the food media, which has often been really hesitant to talk about race and really the dark side. You know, I think the food media right now is doing a really good job of covering immigrant stories. You know, you saw with this past Thanksgiving, for instance, a lot of the major outlets did immigrant Thanksgiving stories. Um, but they're really of a certain specific flavor. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're very, um, they're very pro-immigrant because I think people are trying to make a statement because we live in these very anti-immigrant times. At the same time, they didn't really cover the dark side of it or there's reality outside of, you know, um, after-school special type of uh, lessons, life lessons. 
Um, and so I, I, I realize now that like there's a space and you have to be willing to take the space, um, to really hammer in that it's complicated and we are going to devote the space to really testing out like all the different ways in which something is messed up <laughs> because it matters. And, you know, if you, if you remain positive, you know, you don't think about you know, the real experiences that people have and those matter. When you think about that, I mean, this question can be for both of you, and the progress that's been made based on these conversations, you know, you're saying immigrant stories got are getting told more often, but maybe not in the the way that they need to be told in the future. How satisfied are you with, we'll call this the first wave of this conversation, because I think maybe, you know, food sovereignty and all of that is the second wave. How satisfied are you with the work that's been done so far? I mean, personally, I am definitely not satisfied. Probably 10%. <laughs> what, what would have had to happen? Like what would have had to happen in that first wave to get that to a higher percentage? More gatekeepers of color. Yeah, I think also when we talk about first wave, um, let's remind ourselves that we're talking about mainstream first wave and that. Mm-hmm. Folks have been trying to have these conversations for a long time. There was just not a lot of uh, gatekeepers or white folks with influence that were co-signing these conversations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what's missing um, now moving forward? Well, I think the fact that, for example, the fact that Racist Sandwich has the traction that it has owes a lot to the fact that our listeners and our supporters are deeply embedded in the food media. Um, they're not a majority, but there are people who are working in that world in staff positions and editorial positions who support us and want to do better and want to sort of bring change to their organizations. And, you know, if we had launched, gosh, I mean, 10 years ago, we might have gotten like a cult following, but not really one that actually had an effect. Like for, for example, mm. you know, the other day, um, Food 52 tweeted something really silly. Um, I won't go into it because it's complicated, but they tweeted something really silly. And we retweeted it with a single emoji, and then they changed it. They changed the tweet. They deleted it, and they rephrased everything, and they changed the story based on that. The people are actually starting to listen, you know, <laughs> um, and they understand why we do what we do, and I think there's a genuine desire to reshape the food world in some camps. A lot of other, like the majority don't want to change. Yeah, I mean, just to play devil's advocate, I feel like maybe it's they're reshaping out of fear versus progress. <laughs> I mean... Or I feel like people think that they have good intentions to quote-unquote diversify, but to really build um, true diversity, gender diversity, racial diversity, racial ethnic diversity, age diversity, um, into the foundation of the organization or the company or media entity that you run, which some folks claim to want that. It takes a really long time to build genuine relationships with 
with um, other people that don't look like you. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm speaking about mostly white-run media organizations. And it's not just like you hire one black writer or you hire one South Asian editor and they're like, oh, look, I did it. Or you have, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a fellowship program and you have some folks of color or have some queer folks and you're like, I'm diversifying the voices of this organization, whatever, um, and not only last for a season or two. How are you building that in a way that there will be roots? And how do you recognize that it's not going to happen overnight and that people are probably going to push back and maybe be a little angry or a little distrustful or skeptical when you start doing this kind of work if you've never done this kind of work before? Um, and it's really scary to do this kind of work when you're like, oh, shit, uh, maybe we haven't been doing the work enough, this kind of work, to change the conversation about food, to be really more equitable um, and more representative of what people who eat food look like. Um, it's really fucking scary. Um, but how do you start? And there needs to be more folks that are ready to experience all the discomfort that comes with doing this kind of work. Are there resources mm-hmm. for people when you, th- maybe someone's listening to this now and they're resonating with it. What are some good resources that you would each recommend to go check this out, get support, figure out how to navigate these waters. Listen to my podcast, The Racist Sandwich, at racistsandwich.com. <laughs> I love Racist Sandwich. I think supporting POC, sorry, oh, sorry, did I cut you off? No, no, go. Oh, I was going to say supporting POC led and owned media is really important. Um, so uh, I'm a big fan of that. Um, are there some specifics yeah. that you particularly listen to yourself or, or subscribe to? I love Racist Sandwich. Uh, I love supporting. Um, there's a newish magazine um, by our mutual friend, Stephen Satterfield, called Whetstone, black-owned magazine, food magazine. Um, there, uh, I love buying books by POC starting the work. Um, and... Or simply, you know, sharing and retweeting, um, uh, you know, stuff by POCs, uh, created by POCs. Um, I think there is a great blog post on Dakota Kim from Kimchi, on her blog, Kimchi for Breakfast. I almost said Kimchi for President, which also makes sense to me. Um, <laughs> her blog, where it basically is a blog post saying, like, stop asking me to do all the emotional and intellectual labor for you. Here are some other writers you should also consider, and here are some posts explaining culinary appropriation. That is a really good um, 101. Well, I think well, going through I both of your feeds. I recommend Soleil's writing outside of Racist Sandwich as well. Yeah, I was going to say going through both of yeah. your Twitter and Instagram feeds and just looking at what you've retweeted and commented on and and written yourselves is, I think, a good place to start also. Mm-hmm. Ladies, thank you so much for coming on the show. Will you let people know how to find you online if they want to continue the discussion or see what you're up to? Sure. Um, so the Racist Sandwich is, you can find it on racistsandwich.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Race and Food, and um, my Twitter is H O O L E 
I-L. You can find Food Book Fair on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook at Food Book Fair. Uh, we mostly retweet at, uh, we mostly retweet racist sandwich tweets, so you're going to get a double <laughs> dose. Um, so I'm happy about that and happy to hard co-sign on that. Soleil and Kim, thank you so much. Really appreciate the time today. For everyone else, this is our last episode of the season, so we will catch you next season and next year back here on Meant to Be Eaten. I'm Andrea Ween. You can catch me on Instagram at Dre Eats and at the show at Meant to Be Eaten. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.